Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. Hey, listener, did you know you can get paid to podcast? With ACAST Plus, you can launch paid subscriptions and one-time payments to turn listeners into paying fans. You can offer exclusive content, early access, ad-free streams, and much more, which listeners can access from their favorite podcast apps. We have all the tools you need to promote them. If you're interested in ACAST Plus, sign up to ACAST now for free at ACAST.com to get access. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. So I'm sitting here this morning with Soren, my eight-month-old son here. Uh, Soren, can you say hi? Anyway, so apologies if he, if you hear him during this intro. I normally put together these episodes on Sunday night, or Sunday afternoon, actually, usually, throughout the day, and I just couldn't yesterday. I was so fried. I was so toast from election week, uh, you know, a lack of sleep every single night because of too much nerves and interest about uh, what news there was each morning. And then, of course, with an eight-month-old, those mornings are early uh, and having to <laughs> let Jaffrey sleep some more, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure a lot of you can relate to that feeling of uncertainty and anxiety throughout the week, even though I was fairly confident, you know, starting Wednesday at some point 
uh, about the result. Anyway, so here we are, a little late. Um, but this interview, man, was so good. I did not know much going into it about really the mechanics or the even the impact of the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. Of course, I had seen Spotlight, the film, and I had been dimly aware of some other news stories. But I'm not, you know, I wasn't raised Catholic. I'm not Catholic now. Uh, I'm not from the East Coast. And it just felt a little bit like a world away. But of course, uh, if we think globally, um, then any scandal in the Catholic Church is a far, far bigger deal than, you know, Bill Hybels, uh, you know, in the evangelical world having a scandal or what have you. Just much bigger reach and much bigger consequences. Uh, and talking with Karna was was just a, a pleasure. She has done her work. She knows a lot about this topic. And uh, I think you'll learn a lot, too, and find it quite interesting. So let's get into it. Karna Lazoya. Very cool, very interesting name. Uh, not going to ask you about that because I want to make sure we have the time to get to all this very interesting stuff. Uh, I'm sure I'm a bit a long-winded about the name, my name. So okay, good. Probably well, a I, good call. I have the right <laughs> impulse, but I do want to start with a little bit of your background here. I, I want to know how you came to Catholicism, or if you were born into it, and how you came to journalism. Yeah, so both kind of just fell into my lap. I'm what they call a cradle Catholic. So that means that I was born into a Catholic family, baptized as a child, and just grew up in the church. And I I say that because I'm most familiar with their experiences, and mine seems to be the same. College is when you really fall away from the church or really get into it. Right. So for me, college was the time when I really got into my faith, and that was in the 90s. And I started going to daily mass and praying on my own and just started taking responsibility for my own relationship with God. So that was that was my faith. And then after college, I didn't have kind of a plan of what I wanted to do, which is typical of a liberal arts uh, student. And I studied politics, political theory, which is super marketable. And so I was kind of just <laughs> trying, <laughs> trying to decide what to do uh, with my life. And a friend of mine offered me a position as a translator, just as a temporary position with an international news service called Zenit that reports on Vatican news. So I took that as just a temporary position what started happening, though, is that I didn't think the articles were written well, so I started rewriting them because I knew I knew how to write as a journalist. And my editor took notice, and he started to really train me in AP style and things like that. And in, within two years, he offered me his position, and uh, yeah, that's how my career began. Well, as a uh, former philosophy major... I can recognize the uh, marketable skill crater there, and and that is uh, one reason why I am now getting a, a doctorate in psychology, so that I can have a job uh, later <laughs> into my life. I don't details, I don't, right? Details. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, it, it's been very good to write production commercial music, but I I do sort of question whether hip brands will want my uh, you know what I think is cool when I am fifty, for instance, and so. That's one of the one of the reasons young girls world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And I also resonate with the college Catholic thing. I told you in an email that and, and listeners to the show know that I got very close to becoming a Catholic uh, about three or four years ago. 
but it started in college. And in college, I'm a cradle evangelical, you might say. I actually was baptized because my parents were both raised Lutheran. A lot of evangelicals are more in the Baptist tradition and get baptized later. But I was baptized as a baby and accepted Christ as a five-year-old or whatever at Vacation Bible School, which is just the evangelical version of Cradle Catholic. But in college, I found Catholic Mass and, in fact, Daily Mass in San Luis Obispo, California. Nice. Which which is a pretty good place to figure to go to mass because there's the old mission church right downtown. It's all yeah. adobe, you know, white adobe, 150 year old building, uh, just just really right? beautiful. Yeah, and I found that at that point in my life, I was pretty frustrated with evangelical aesthetics and sort of a lack of liturgy. I wouldn't have had the language for that yet. And I just couldn't find any evangelical or Protestant churches at the time that I liked. A couple years later, I found out there might have been a few that I didn't know about. So I just kind of tried going to mass. One of my philosophy professors, my favorite professor of my undergrad experience, was sort of Catholic adjacent and his wife was Catholic. I think now he's full on Catholic. Uh, And so I tried it and I was just like, this is, are you kidding me? 25 minute service, a three minute sermon usually about a passage in the gospels every week we pray for the poor and like <laughs> remember you know this is like yeah. incredible or every day i guess so i would i started just going to that about once a week and in typical college town fashion something that is harder to find unless you're right downtown in a big city they had a noon daily mass which was nice. perfect you know now it's covid and so it's all kind of shut down. But I, I, I still do sometimes go to daily mass here in Seattle and Friday is 9am. That's the late one. The normal <laughs> ones are at eight and I'm just not, that's not feasible for me. So pre COVID, I was trying to do, you know, the Friday ones occasionally. We'll see if I can get back to it once they open back up. But Catholic daily mass is still my ideal church service. That was a long way to say that. We're coming from daily mass is awesome, but you got a good daily mass. They they're not all twenty five minutes long. Some really? could be longer. At my parish in Denver, when I was in Denver, our daily mass was at nine a.m. and it was forty five minutes. It was geared towards the senior citizens. And, exactly and, right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But those downtown noon daily masses are awesome. Yeah. But if you live in downtown Seattle or pretty much any city, find your local cathedral. Try a daily mass. Like it's. A lot of times, sorry, they'll have morning masses. I used to go to a 7.30. You're in and out in 25 minutes, right. and then you can go on with your day. Go to and work, then, yeah. um, Or after work, they'll have like a 5 or 6.30 mass, too. So the parishes in the downtown areas try to cater to working professionals and helping them find a moment to, you know, pray. Well, so we've spent the first uh, seven minutes here proselytizing a particular style of of Catholic worship service, but we're going to get into some harder shit. Let's transition here by asking one more biographical question. So you're young Gen X, and I feel like your generation is the generation where the, the sex abuse crisis really sort of landed in terms of started having real demographic effects, like a oh shit moment for a lot of people. And I'm an old millennial. So we're we're sort of near that the first kind of generation that this is like, oh, maybe we shouldn't be Catholic or oh, maybe the church is bullshit because sex crisis, basically something like that. My question for you is, when did that crisis come into your view? Like, what's the beginning of your history with the scandal? Two things. 
One, after college, I spent a couple years as kind of a missionary in a group called Regnum Christi. And we talk about it briefly in the podcast. It's an organization founded by uh, Father Marcial Maciel, who was later found out to be a serial sexual abuser. Um, and he led a double life. He had at least two wives. There are rumors of others. And he had kids, I think at least six. Okay, so this is um, a, another order of the Jean Vanier th- stuff. Exactly. Where he, you know, Vanier's seems to be sort of stunted in some area and not seeing that this aspect of his life is abusive and wrong, which I don't, you probably didn't hear it, but we did a, like a two hour long episode on processing through that with someone who used to be a director of L'Arche up here in Seattle. But this is different. This is a whole other level. This is like true sociopath. sociopath. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so I was a member of that organization, but back in between 94 and January 2002, I left. I was four and a half years with that organization. But that was after the original reports of sexual abuse came out, but before we kind of really found out what really happened, and that was in 2006. So I left really kind of before things hit the fan. But the Boston story would have been percolating Around well, that the time. Bo- see, the thing is, the Boston story hit three or four weeks after I left. Oh, interesting. But I didn't notice it because I went to Europe for a year and a half mm. to try and figure out what the next part of my life is going to look like. And I wasn't paying attention. I was living in Europe on my own, working at a finishing school. So it's interesting because I that was just not on my radar at all. And then when I got the job at Zenit, I had already moved back to the States. And so that's when I started really hearing about the sex abuse crisis. But at that time, in kind of really more conservative Catholic circles, which I definitely was a part of. So I, I, I don't think that I really speak for the majority of Catholics of my generation because I think I definitely was kind of more in this Catholic circle, um, conservative Catholic circle. In 2004, we had a lot of faith in the Dallas Charter. The Dallas Charter was the document that the bishops wrote that had all the policies that they were going to put into place going forward to prevent sex abuse happening in the church. So in 2004, we had a lot of faith in the Dallas Charter, and we would hear more stories of sex abuse coming out, but I don't think we really understood the depth of the problem. And we really thought that the bishops had fixed it. I think for me, the sex abuse crisis hit home in 2006 when we really started learning about Father Maciel, like the real story about Father Maciel. And for me personally, that's when I came face to face with it. I still had a relationship with Reagan Christie after I left in 2002. But after 2006, I really kind of cut off that relationship because I started to see more clearly what kind of organization it was and what kind of founder it had. That was the point when I started to see more clearly this problem of sex abuse. And I think now I really do speak for a lot of Catholics that we thought the bishops handled it in 2002. And with the McCarrick revelations, I think we couldn't ignore the fact anymore that the bishops really didn't have a handle on this. Can you we, give us a little Cliff's notes on the McCarrick scandal? Okay, yeah. So this is um, for anyone who wants kind of a primer of what happened in 2018. 
which a lot of people in the Catholic Church call the Summer of Shame. That's the first episode of our podcast. But briefly, in June 2018, the Archdiocese of New York sent out a press release, kind of surprising a lot of people in the church. People were not expecting this, announcing that there had been an allegation of abuse against Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. That was, and these are the words they use, credible and substantiated. And that surprised a lot of people. We weren't sure what to do with the news. I think a lot of us were like, is this for real? And then the New York Times started coming out with stories about it wasn't just one minor. They had a story about how he had also abused seminarians. So we're like, huh? And for like, non-Catholics, a cardinal is not a parish priest. This is not just your local pastor. Yeah, I should set the context a little bit for who Cardinal McCarrick was. He was the leading churchman in the United States. He was uh, a member wow. of the College of Cardinals. He was the former Archbishop of Washington, D.C., which is a really key C. We call them C's, right? Each diocese is a C. So he's a leading churchman in the United States. He was kind of seen both by the right and the left as someone who was a moderate. And he was a very good fundraiser. He was kind of the the man people would go to when they needed a lot of money. I'm trying to think of how to like to make a Protestant evangelical version. It's like if Rick Warren in 2002, at the height of a purpose-driven life... <laughs> was also part of a global organization such that he was the top man in United States of America. Like, right. Th- that's the closest I can, like just, in, you know, the biggest superstar plus authority of a structure that Protestantism doesn't have. And then yeah. Rick Warren was a serial abuser of adults and children. That's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. To, to quote Joe Biden, right? So he, Cardinal McCarrick was also a man who rose quite well through the ranks. Like he was extraordinarily good at not just fundraising, but relationships, which is fundamental to fundraising. Pope John Paul II made him a cardinal shortly after he named him to um, the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. The Catholic University of America Interestingly enough, we have a structure. We are the University of the U.S. Bishops, and the Archdiocese of Washington has a a place on our board of trustees as our chancellor. So Cardinal McCarrick was our chancellor for many years. He was also a member of our board of trustees. He was one of the longest-serving members of the board of trustees. So we had a long-time relationship with him. He was also an honorary degree recipient I came to the Catholic University of America in 2018 in July 1st. One of my first jobs was to write the announcement that we were rescinding Cardinal McCarrick's degree. So that's kind of how I started my job there. So this was a really huge deal that Cardinal McCarrick had been accused of this. I think the tipping point when people really started paying attention is when the New York Times ran the story about James Grine. So James Grine's uncle was best friends with Cardinal Theodore McCarrick going back to the 40s. So growing up, James always kind of had Cardinal McCarrick as a member of the family. He was really accepted into the Grine family as just another member of the family. He baptized James. James was the first person he ever baptized. And then he began abusing him at the age of 11. 
And the New York Times published that story. And with it, they published a picture of James when he's, I think, 14 and Cardinal McGarrick. And it's how we start the podcast. We described that picture. Seeing that picture, I think, helped everyone visualize the evil that it represented. Yeah. And that's when things just kind of got out of hand. Then a couple of weeks later, Pennsylvania published their grand jury report, which basically published, publicly made available details from cases of over 300 priests that had abused over 1,000 children. And that's when the lady just kind of lost it. I think the church before 2018 and after 2018 are, are going to be two very different things. I think as a as a non-Catholic, you know, not paying super close attention to it all, I think of the Boston Globe stuff as like, oh, that was some sort of turning point. But I guess that because I'm not steeped in the hierarchy stuff, right? It's like, well, a bunch of priests and maybe there's like a local bishop who's kind of protecting them. And maybe a couple other people are like, hey, that's bad PR. But the McCarrick stuff is like, oh, who's the kind of person who rises up to Cardinal? And if it's this kind of person, and if there's no way to tell something like this going on, it's a cancer that's closer to the center. Is is that like a, a way of describing it? I think it's the difference between finding out that your uncle is a really corrupt and horrible person and finding out your dad is, you know? Yeah, yeah. Be- because uh, your uncle, you love him and you're brokenhearted. I think your dad, you start questioning your identity. That's a good way of putting it. So if if this is a, a tipping or turning point, you know, there's like pre-2018 church and post-2018 church, I assume you mostly mean like in the States in terms of like, does this has this had ripple effects globally the same way it has had here? That's a fascinating question because it's one that I hadn't thought of before the podcast. We did over 40 interviews um, for this podcast. And some of the first interviews really made the point that we need to understand this in a global context. And what is fascinating is that the English-speaking churches, so Ireland, Australia, the United States, we really were the first ones to go through the sex abuse crisis. But we are starting to see cases coming from other churches in other parts of the world. Mm. So an interesting part of the story is that the U.S. bishops were under a lot of pressure from the faithful, the laity, to have some sort of response to 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 the revelations of 2018. And they were set to pass a series of reforms in November of that year. The Vatican told them to wait, and this angered Catholics even more. Right. But the reasoning of the Vatican, and I agree with it now, and that in the moment, I have to admit, I didn't totally understand it, but it makes a lot of sense now. And Cardinal um, Daniel DiNardo, who was the head of the U.S. Bishops Conference at the time, spoke to us specifically about this. And he said he also didn't understand why the Vatican would prevent them from passing these reforms. But he said it was because Francis really wanted the entire church to respond to this together. So he convoked a meeting in 2019, inviting all the heads of bishops' conferences from around the world to Rome. And as a result of that meeting, he wrote a document called Vos Estis Lux Mundi, which means you are the light of the world. And in that document, 
he promulgates new decrees. And I'm not a canon lawyer, so if you want to go deep into this, invite a canon lawyer. Yeah, that's fine. I have a few I could recommend. And and he articulates uh, several of the reforms that the bishops were going to pass in November. So I think that shows that this is not just an American problem. This is a global problem. And I think Pope Francis is doing what he can to make sure the entire church is responding, you know, kind of in lockstep. Yeah, I mean, so on the one hand, that makes sense because uh, it's unlikely to be an American problem, right? Like, uh, what is it about American culture that would cause a sociopath or, you know, a, a serial abuser to rise in the ranks? I mean, you could imagine it, but what's the psychology of, you know, of all this stuff, the power differential, all that stuff is quite universal. And so, sure, there might be some unique issues that made the U.S. particularly fallow ground for something like that. But you could certainly imagine it happening elsewhere or that kind of ground becoming available in, you know, other countries for for whatever reason. And so it seems wise to, like, address it more systemically from the top. Especially when you think of how bishops are chosen. They are chosen by Rome, by the Congregation for Bishops. So if that same organization is choosing bishops around the world, what's that process? But so this does bring up a potential worry. You've mentioned the podcast. It's called Crisis. It is a series made by practicing Catholics. You you guys are clearly stating your goal is to renew and build up the Catholic Church. So personally, I have no doubts that as practicing Catholics, you can do good journalism and make a good You know, you can do good work and tell a true story in an honest and fair way. But I would imagine that there are people who are quite skeptical that, you know, anybody from the inside could do this story justice. I'm sure you've gotten some pushback or heard some things or had some conversations. And I'm curious how that stuff's gone. Yeah. um, So at Catholic University, we launched this organization called the Catholic Project. So it's it's an initiative of Catholic University. So the executive director of that is Stephen White. Every time I see him in the morning, I'm like, have you fixed the church yet? Like, <laughs> when are you going to get around to fixing the church? We need, we need – every time some bad news comes in, I'm like, Stephen, you said you were going to fix this. <laughs> so th- th- I see the question kind of in two ways. Number one, are we objective enough to be able to look at this honestly? We are coming from this perspective as Catholics. I think it's a valid perspective. Will we tell the story in the same way as someone who isn't Catholic? Probably not. I think they'll bring a different perspective to it, and that's valid too. Um, But I don't think you have to be not Catholic to bring a valid viewpoint to this issue. And I've seen this, and this is maybe a bit of a tangent, um, and I have a a friend who is an editor of a news service called Catholic News Agency. His name is J.D. Flynn, and, and we were talking the other day about how important the Catholic media has been in telling this story And 2018 was really, he calls it a moment when Catholic media started seeing themselves in a different way because they felt they were really doing journalism that wasn't just PR for the church. I think you are exactly seeing this uh, in the Trump era with places like Christianity Today and, and, you know, that are evangelical media organizations. And then you see other ones like Newsmax just completely selling out whole Trump train. And they've had to make decisions, right, either based on – and even like First Things, which is not specifically Protestant, kind of straddles the Catholic Protestant world 
they seem to have made some editorial decisions kind of toward Trumpism. And, and, you know, you find these crisis moments, again, crisis is a good word for it, where it could feel like, well, we're apologists for the church. Are we going to keep being that way? Or, you know, it feels sometimes like we are, right? Are we going to keep doing that? Where are we going to make a stand? What is our purpose here? And I think a lot of times people think that those decisions are are straightforward and it, you'd be stupid to do it wrong, but they're not straightforward questions, no. especially when you yeah. take into account individual psychology and, and how are people persuaded of things and who do they listen to? And, you know, mm-hmm. those are fascinating sort of uh, boardroom discussions or newsroom discussions. Yeah. So I'd invite anyone who's going to listen to the podcast to just approach it with an open mind, but knowing that we are Catholics who are telling the story. We'll definitely see things in a different way than someone who's not Catholic or someone who's more skeptical. We did make a point of interviewing as wide a variety of voices as possible. There are people we interviewed who told us flat out the church hasn't done anything to address the sex abuse crisis. We also interviewed people who think that, yeah, you know, we're doing great and we don't need to do any more. So we tried to get all sides on this. But yeah, unapologetically Catholic, for sure, is our perspective. So I think that where most non-Catholics in America, our big point of contact, at least in the last five, ten years, is the movie Spotlight or mm-hmm. that the Boston Globe stories of which, depending on how old you were, you were very or at least dimly aware. And now maybe it's the McCarrick stuff. But even, you know, as someone kind of paying attention I, until today, I don't think I really grasped the difference there. I just thought it was like not having read a ton. Oh, it's like another one, but it's only one guy. It's not a whole archdiocese or whatever. So I kind of thought it was maybe less of a deal, which now I understand, thanks to your description, how it was a bigger deal. But let's let's start with Spotlight and the Boston Globe's work and that early 2000s stuff. Where does the podcast intersect with what people might be familiar with from from, say, that film? Yeah, so that's a really good question. First of all, Spotlight, the movie was awesome. And I also, yeah, yeah, they did a really great job in that. Um, we interviewed uh, Michael Garabedian, who was played by Stanley Tucci. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, He's he, the lawyer he, who's like getting all the cases together and, and yeah. is very worried, very doubtful at the beginning that anything can really get done. Uh, still doubtful. He, still doubtful. Oh, okay. Interesting. Still doubtful. Um, he's still litigating cases. I just saw him in the news a couple of weeks ago. He's People are still coming forward from that era. One was wow. from the 50s. The other was from the 70s. Still litigating cases. So um, he's very much still in the fight. His uh, life's work, basically. His life's work. Wow. Yeah. He was he was good to talk to. So so what's our kind of relationship with 2002? Definitely 2018 is our focus, and that's where we start the podcast. We do go back to the beginning of the sex abuse crisis, which we begin in two, in 1950s, and then we take it up to the current day. 2002 obviously features prominently in that story. That was a major event. I think because we're a younger team. We did come of age, 2018, I think we were just fully aware of what was happening. In some of the interviews with some of the reporters who were reporting, they definitely felt that 2002 was tougher because it was longer. The Spotlight team was producing one or two stories a day. I think in January 2002, they had published 60 stories 
just in January alone wow. yeah. on the sex abuse crisis. So the coverage was relentless. So I think that would be the major difference. We call it an do- audio documentary. We see this work closer to spotlight the movie than spotlight the investigative reporting. We're telling the story of the sex abuse crisis. Um, we're not performing it. So it's definitely more of a documentary. This isn't investigative reporting and um, we're not uncovering new things. Uh, we're trying to help people understand the crisis. And it's geared really towards Catholics. But honestly, sex abuse is not something that only happens in the Catholic Church. So the more we can get people to talk about this issue and the more we can help other institutions also address this issue, you know, we'll we'll be really happy with that result. Yeah, it's definitely not uh, limited to the Catholic Church. And listeners know this, but you don't. I'm planning to focus in my psychological education on spiritual and religious trauma and planning to specialize in working with survivals, survivors of spiritual and religious trauma when I have my practice up and going. And my dissertation is about spiritual trauma, which I have just begun working on now. Uh, I'm only in my second year out of five, so I, I'm early on in the process. But but that's kind of my area of focus. It's the it's where my previous interests and the field of psychology most overlap. Uh, and it's also my own experience, not through uh, not through sexual abuse, but through emotional abuse around end times teaching, which is virtually absent in Catholicism. One of the beautiful things I love about it: there's no batshit rapture theology floating around and selling hundreds of millions of books in the Catholic world. But that's a sidebar. Uh, but so certainly <laughs> sex abuse is also a big problem in, in non-Catholic churches. And of course, it's a big problem with teachers, you know, all, any Boy regular Scouts, instance, you know, yeah. Boy Scouts, any regular instance where adults are with children in any kind of authoritative and unsupervised way, there's a there's a potential for that. And so we have to take it seriously. We have to be um, vigilant. So but in the film, uh, there Richard Jenkins plays the voice. He's never on camera. But those of us who who love his work from either uh, The Visitor or Step Brothers or wherever else. He voices this character of Richard Sype, who is a real life guy. He's an ex-monk and an ex-Catholic. He's a psychotherapist. He's an author. And he's a, at least some kind of a researcher. Now, there's this kind of bombshell claim in the film, which he has made in, in public. And he claimed that his research showed something like a 6% of priests uh, from whatever the population was that he was looking at. And I don't know that population, so I'm not being authoritative here, but 6% had sexually abused children. Now, if that's true, that is a very big number, right? We're talking about a very non-trivial chance that your child will be sexually abused simply by raising them Catholic, uh, just on the statistics of it. I guess my question is, is there any research, and I, I know that you mentioned earlier that you're not like way up on all the numbers, but is there any research or um, so kind of reporting that basically people agree on, even if they're on different sides of this, you know, whether they're practicing or no longer or whatever, like, is there good data on prevalence? Yeah, that's a good question. And now I want to... I want to investigate that 6% number from what I've heard. And as you mentioned, I haven't delved into those stats myself. And so I would be hesitant to say yes or no. I would say that there are a lot more cases out there. I think that we still don't know 
how many cases of sexual abuse are out there, victims are still coming forward. I will say that Richard Seit, may he rest in peace, he, interestingly enough, died uh, just weeks after the revelations of Cardinal McCarrick came out. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah. I often wonder about that timing. I think God had mercy on him. I think mm. he didn't want to put him through 2018. <laughs> um, he is really a pioneer in, in bringing to light a lot of this in the sex abuse crisis. He was rightly featured in the Spotlight Report. His his research is interesting. It really is the first draft. So, you know, he'd be the first one to say, you know, maybe not all my numbers are right. I think he was mostly looking at like Burlington, Vermont or something, which is a pretty small area. The only thing I could find just in some brief research was this Burlington report that he put together. And so how much does that generalize? What was there sort of a culture of corruption, you know, in that particular area? This is why we do larger scale nationally representative sample. You know, this is why researchers do that kind of thing right. to try yeah. and figure out if there's a sample bias or something like that. Uh, but, you know, yeah. it's still, it's worth looking at it. And he does sound like maybe one of the first people to really do some of that work. The the U.S. bishops uh, had a study done by um, the John Jay researchers on the causes and context of the sex abuse crisis. And we spoke to the head researcher, Margaret Smith, in our podcast. I think some of the interesting things she says is, uh, is that, one, this is it's largely historical. And by that, I don't mean that we aren't we are very much still living this because this is never especially for those who are victims or survivors of sexual abuse. It's something they live with their entire lives. So I'm not saying that in the sense that it's over and we've moved on, but historical right. in the sense that 96% of these cases that have been reported since 2002, which is when we started really tracking, happened before 2002. So, or before 2000, sorry. And 90% are really from before 1990. So that tells you one thing about, you know, I don't know the numbers, but I wouldn't be surprised that his number checks out if you're talking about like 1970, which is when it right. seemed to really be at its height, right? Yeah. So there, something happens when you have these big scandals. There is a natural and very good a deterrent effect. Right. In, in right. people who are doing this kind of thing that they would stop. There's a deterrent effect in terms of people who are doing hiring to go, oh, uh, actually, this guy's kind of creepy. Maybe we should look into this. You know, like it spreads out uh, not not actually through anyone's particular virtue. Right. Like you, you don't even need to give anybody credit for that. It just becomes more a part of the public consciousness and therefore affects decisions and will have effects, in this case, positive effects, through people being more aware and more vigilant, kind of naturally. Yeah, yeah definitely. And I think especially, and you want to talk about what the church has done, and we can talk about that later, but just one of the things that the church is doing is a program, well, they call it safe environment training. One of its aspects is training and teaching people what grooming is and all that. Right. But it also creates an awareness among everybody in the church that this is an issue we're paying attention to. And if we see that, you know, see something, say something, right, um, from 9-11, this, this also applies. And I think just creating that awareness and talking about it, because I think one of my personal theories is that a large part of the reason why this became such a scandal or a crisis or became such a problem or the reason why it festered 
kind of under the ground for years and years and years is because nobody talked about it. It was taboo, right? Even sexual abuse within families and and things like that. We, We just didn't talk about it. And now we are. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. And some of that is just regular cultural development that affects the church. It affects Hollywood and yep. Weinstein, you know, and all and Kevin Spacey and all, all that stuff, right? So it's there are global changes, yeah, that are going on that are affecting all of these yeah. smaller bits. Yeah. So one last thing on on Richard Sype and the film before we take a break. And this one is we don't have to talk about this for a long time, but I do think it's worth mentioning because it there is a kind of a ubiquity to it that people assume for whatever reason that there is a relationship between homosexuality and priests being involved in abusing children. So because maybe because priests will often abuse boys, people think, well, I guess if you're homosexual, you're you're more likely to be a child abuser. But Sype, for all his criticism and his research, said he found no link there, which then if you think about it as yourself, you go, oh, yeah, actually, that there is no link there, right? Like. Child abusers abuse both boys and girls. They are both men and women. And who you prefer gender-wise, sexually, is an unrelated question to whether or not you find children sexually attractive, not least because children are not sexually developed. They are pre-puberty, right? And so whatever you find alluring in an adult, if that is a broad chest and a tight butt or big breasts, you know, whatever the thing is that you like, it's not there in children. Their bodies are functionally the same uh, until puberty. And, and and yet it is a kind of a myth that persists. And I just wanted to give you a minute to just comment on that or if it's come up or what you've what you've read or learned about that. Oh, yeah, we totally uh, take on this topic, which is one of the hot button topics of this entire conversation. I think by even asking the question, you are almost kind of revealing your uh, thoughts on it. Um, that's, you know, so people don't even want to talk about it because even just talking about it causes division. Sure. Uh, but we talk about it because that's who we are and that's what we do. So, yeah, we spoke about this with Margaret Smith, who uh, was the head researcher of the John Jay report, and they conducted that large scale study into the causes and context. I don't remember the actual number, but let's just say 90% of the abuse was male-on-male abuse. Now, don't quote me. You're going to publish that number. I I don't know if that's the right one, but it's a high number like that, right? So a lot of this was homosexual abuse. That's what she calls it. Like the the abuse was homosexual because it was male-on-male abuse. Now, does that mean that the abuser is a homosexual? She says that is not necessarily... That doesn't necessarily translate. There there can be homosexual abuse without the person identifying as a homosexual. She argues that the reason why most of this is male on male is has to, more to do with access. That's what I was just going to say, right? Um, altar boys. Because right? altar boys, right? There weren't girl altar boys. Now, uh, Stephen White has made the point, and it made me think, uh, girls weren't altar boys in the 30s either. And uh, we didn't have this problem with sexual abuse in earlier days. So what how, is it? I, I don't want to. I don't want to slow you down too much. But how sure are we that it really started in the fifties? I mean, 
there could certainly be sort of a, there are sexual mores that change over time. And so possibly we're getting less buttoned up or something around the 50s and 60s and rock and roll. And, you know, maybe that has something to do with it. But I mean, what kind of data could we possibly have that are we could really say <laughs> in the 30s they weren't molesting <clears throat> kids, right? Like, you know, I mean, how would you know that? Like, who kept records of that kind of thing? Or in the 1700s say, or something, right? Yeah, I was going to say, are you blaming this on Elvis Presley? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, we don't know, right? Because all of our data comes from survivors coming forward. So, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And and your point about both men and women abuse, again, I don't know the exact number, but I know most abuse of minors is males abusing. And they do abuse both boys and girls. Right. Um, but you, but men, women Men are more likely to be child abusers uh, than women. Right, are, right, right. Women yeah. don't generally abuse minors. And most sexual abuse of children does happen uh, in the home. And it's it's normally by a married man. Um, so those, right. So it's you again. It's access. Trends, right. Right. And and you also yeah. there there are other uh, factors that would explain. It. I mean, I I think that the argument against homosexuality being linked to it is strongest by just saying that like children's bodies are basically identical, other than their genitalia. They they don't have sexually formed bodies yet. They haven't gone through puberty. Access is one argument for why it would be more male. But you could also posit other causes, like, for instance, and I don't know this to be true, but if it were true, child abuse is more likely to happen uh, same sex in general because of whatever psychological causes, you know, an adult who something about their childhood or, you know, whatever it is that causes. They're they're more comfortable with the same sex or. Right. Or maybe there's some weird kind of identification with the child, this sort of unhealthy, bizarre thing that they more identify with young people, their same gender than opposite gender. I mean, there are five or 10 causes you could think of that would explain parts of that high number. It's. yeah. Yeah. I think it's a it's a question that is still open to some extent. I, I don't the, and the data does not back up the assertion that a homosexual is more apt to abuse minors than a right. heterosexual. That, right. that, that that's the big that, that's the big thing. Right. Yeah. That doesn't stand up. But as you said, there's a lot of different factors because we are still dealing with the fact that most of it is male on male. So I think it's important for us to understand that. And, yes. and I don't oh, think totally. we fully I don't think we fully understood it. Now, there's an interesting part of this, too, is that in the 1970s and several people talked to us about this, the 60s and the 70s, there were problems in seminaries where there were reports of of a lot of kind of sexual promiscuity in the seminaries, uh, which is really problematic uh, because they're supposed to be studying to be celibate priests. Getting, so it's getting really, all their wiggles out before, <laughs> yeah, before they I guess. take the vows. And, and a lot of that sexual promiscuity was homosexual. So there are arguments that suggest maybe that tolerance of that homosex, of that promiscuity hmm. maybe provided cover for maybe other types of sexual activities such as abusing minors or pedophilia. And also it's important to understand that pedophilia is really, um, there, there is a thing called mi- being minor attracted, like you're attracted to prepubescent right. children. Um, and that's totally different than the abuse of minors who have hit puberty. 
Right. So it's right. really important to understand that those are two very different categories. Right. And the most egregious abusers really are the pedophiles because pedophiles don't stop. They they abuse children at every moment. So these are the guys who abuse over 100 kids. It's John Gagan, right? It's uh, Father Hanley or Shanley um, in Boston, Father Koss in Dallas. So these are like the the pedophiles and they're the most egregious abusers. Cardinal McCarrick, I think, you know, his abuse was more of seminarians. So these are hmm. young adults, basically. Yeah. So when you have a requirement of celibacy for something like the priesthood, there's got to be some kind of selection bias, selection pressures that go into the kind of people who sign up for that, right? And so I actually wouldn't be surprised in a religious system where homosexual sex is considered a sin for people who are homosexual to feel like, well, if I'm a priest, I won't be having sex. Therefore, this is a good way for me to deal with my homosexual longings is that I'll just go into a, a world where I can't have sex. And hey, I've I've loved my priest and I've I've sort of felt this calling for other reasons as well. It could be one factor among 10 factors. But it could be a very powerful one because sex drive is so powerful and and that might lead to for instance an overabundance of uh homosexual priests. Now we might still need another argument to tie that to abuse. Uh but especially if there's simply sexually mature minors or seminarians or something like that, adults, you know, young adults or whatever. Well, that would explain some of the ratio there if there is a selection pressure, which is interesting in itself. But I'm more interested in just you commenting on what you think the selection pressures are for going into a celibate priesthood. I think definitely in the 40s and 50s for men who were homosexual or same-sex attracted, there weren't a lot of options for them because you couldn't really live a homosexual life as we see today. Um, so I, I would agree that that would be part of the decision-making process. I could definitely see that. You know, I, I, I guess I feel I'm being a little um, speculative. So, you know, I, I couldn't, sure. I, I haven't studied this. I, I couldn't say for sure. What I would say now, though, is things are very different today. It's a very different environment and the Catholic Church, you know, w one of the really fascinating things that I've been learning about, too, is the selection process for candidates to the priesthood. Mm. And the formation of priests has really changed a lot. Interestingly enough, not in response to the sex abuse crisis, it kind of happened parallel to it. In the 40s and 50s, the emphasis on formation was really intellectual formation, so if you could learn Latin and study the, the and get, you know, learn, be able to uh, learn the theology and the philosophy, if you could right. get through those classes, then you could become a priest. Like that was basically the bar. Yeah. Religious university, basically. Right. Exactly. Yep. Today, it's a lot different. They look at a lot different, a lot of different things. We had an interview with a woman who for years worked as a psychologist in a seminary. And she was very much involved in the selection process. And she said that before they even accept a candidate to even study for the priesthood, he goes through a fairly in-depth psychological screening. And I said, my question was, um, are you screening for abusers, right? And she's like, well, yeah, obviously, 
You know, we don't want um, people who, you know, anybody who has a red flag for abuse, we obviously don't want them. But her answer to me basically is that that was kind of the low bar. What they are really looking for is making sure, like, the life of a priest is not an easy life. Giving up family, right, uh, is 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 not an easy decision. They want to make sure that uh, these men are doing it for the right reasons. They want to make sure that they have what it takes to be successful, that this will be a path for them that will lead to flourishing and happiness. And I thought that was kind of cool. I hadn't thought of it that way. I was just kind of really <laughs> zero focused on I don't want kids, I don't want priests being abusers, but our attitude really needs to be, I want a priest who's happy in his life and no regrets and is living a fruitful, um, happy existence. And I know a lot of priests who are, and so I know it's possible. And I thought that that was a really good part of the story. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's really cool to hear stuff like that. I, I'm actually, I'm taking a class on assessment right now. And so that's kind of right where my mind, yeah, yeah, that's where my mind is at right now. And, and actually looking forward to doing assessment work, uh, in my professional life in the future. And that stuff is, is very scientific. People don't, you know, people get worried about like, Oh, what's this test going to tell me about myself? And right. you know, they all have their limits, but like, one of the first things we're learning is every assessment has its limits. Like it's like the first <laughs> sentence. You do a bunch of them. You try and get a probabilistic view. Approximate. A look, yeah. yeah you, you're approximating. You're looking for stuff. It's not just like, well, you got a 19 out of 40, so we know you're dumb, you know, or something like that. It's right. These researchers are motivated by the flourishing of people and they're trying to be accurate and doing good work. And so it, it's very cool to hear that stuff like that is going on at, at the seminary level these days. Let's yeah. take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Catholic Protestant differences, the prestige of priests, uh, and we're going to come back to the question of celibacy and what what type of groups are calling for that to be reformed. Very good. Be right back. Okay, this week on the patron exclusive feed, uh, there is a very fun, <laughs> very fun, funny, and interesting conversation with the hosts of the Dirty Rotten Church Kids podcast. They are also the originator of many dank memes, <laughs> uh, funny sort of Christian and post Christian memes that you might see on your Instagram feed, depending on how snarky of people you follow on Instagram. Um, so check that out. If you become a patron of this show, you get at least two of these exclusive episodes per month. Last month, there were three actually. And uh, yeah, you can also join the patron only Facebook group, which is fantastic. Uh, and man, such a place of healing and understanding after, uh, and actually within in the weeks to come, as uh, you know, whatever about the election is continually litigated on Facebook, uh, it's a kind of an oasis. So if you want to do that, join at patreon.com slash Dan Coke and back to the episode. Let's talk about prestige. So you talk about in the show, there has been a loss of prestige for the role of the priest. And I'm thinking back to Spotlight, the film. And some of the stories that people told, the abuser stories, survivor stories, that in fact, the role of the prestige of the priest was one of the reasons they kept silent or one of the reasons that they were able to be groomed 
because they uh, are like, oh, the, the local celebrity wants to hang out with me. So I guess my question is like, is the dropping of prestige a bad thing? Do we want people to become priests or pastors in the Protestant world because it holds prestige? You know, what are the hidden costs having it be prestigious and in having it not be prestigious? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And you had sent me these questions earlier, so I was like writing out kind of answers and and some of my answers are longer and some are shorter. For this one, my what I wrote down was not at all. <laughs> like like is it a bad thing that they lose prestige? Not at all. Um, so you're you're pretty firm in that camp, yeah. Yeah, I I was talking in another interview about this, and we were kind of laughing about because I asked a lot of people in my interviews who knew McCarrick. I said, "What was McCarrick like? Like, talk to me about him." And they all said that he was very personable, charismatic. Uh, he was somebody you wanted to be around, right? And the same was uh, Father Maciel. Um, he was kind of the same kind of character. We talk about Father Gagan, the the serial pedophile in Boston. Also, I, I've heard first-person accounts of how he was just a very charismatic priest, and people really liked him. So I started to kind of develop this allergy to charismatic, popular priests. Um, well, and this is exactly true in, in the Protestant world, right? Like all, yeah. the, all the televangelist fall from grace stories, right? You don't right. become the most popular televangelist by not being charismatic and prestigious and you know what I mean? Like there's some kind of inverse relationship here that seems to hold not for every charismatic person, not for everyone, right? But for every really bad, really destructive person, they are charismatic. Like it's sort of like a, it's a necessary condition one way, but not the other is how it feels sometimes. Yeah. And I think we get a little carried away with the famous celebrity priests I remember being in when I was in Regnum Christi, the organization I told you about. I just remember a lot of girls being, oh, Father Maciel, he's so holy, he's so holy, or or this priest, oh, he's so holy. So I always remember thinking how weird that was. I, I could, I didn't have the language to explain my feeling, but there was a sense that they had no idea what they were talking about, <laughs> that they were just responding to some charisma that this person was projecting, but they didn't have a really solid sense of who that person was. But that person had made them think that they were this holy person. So even today, I have a bit of an allergy to to popular charismatic priests that everybody seems to agree is holy. And I just kind of hang back and wait for something to come out about them, uh, which is a little not a great way to live your Catholic faith. It's a little cynical, yeah. It's a bit cynical. I am a Gen Xer. You pegged me. (laughs) So I I wear that label proudly. There's a little Kurt Cobain sheen over everything, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Reality Bites, right? That was was released (laughs) um, when I was in college. Anyway, so there is a little bit of an allergy there. That said, we have so many great priests in our church who are who are the real deal who are just regular normal guys and i think more than anything you know if i just have a priest who shows up on time for mass at my daily mass and gives me a 3 minute homily and and if he could talk about the gospels that would be great you know i love it when priests talk about the old testament cuz we don't get enough of that that's that's all i need and um show me where the food pantry is and 
just live a quiet Catholic life. I think that is after this podcast. I think that's where my path is leading me. That's really beautiful. Say a little bit more about that. Live a quiet Catholic life. I mean, that's that is in uh, Paul's letters, right? Uh, make it your whatever to live a quiet life. I'm not quoting it right, but it's in there. It's in the New Testament. <laughs> he doesn't text. say whatever. He doesn't say whatever. <laughs> uh, but you know, that is something that is so antithetical to American culture, be it Catholic, Protestant, or non-theistic American culture. Make it your ambition. There's the word. Make it your ambition. And of course, Catholics have their own translation. So maybe that's NIV or whatever. But make it your ambition to lead a quiet life is so un-American, right? It's, uh, it is <laughs> I'm like, like thinking, I'm, I'm going to put that above my bed. I think that's awesome. Yeah, right. But yeah. so, uh, I don't know, just that that strikes something for me. So just maybe say a little bit more uh, about that and how that relates to your faith. Yeah, I think Or maybe that, how it relates to yeah. this, the you know what this project, how this project has changed you. Maybe that's even more interesting of like, you know, harm avoidance or I don't know, something like that. And this is, this is a topic uh, I've talked about a lot with a lot of people is this question of how what we've learned about the sex abuse crisis changes our understanding of the church and our relationship with it. I actually spoke about this with a survivor, a friend of mine, but she's she's someone I've gotten to know over the last couple of years, and I find her extraordinarily wise. In a conversation I had with her, we were talking about how everybody has their own kind of personal narratives of who you are and what your place is in the world. When something so traumatic happens where your understanding of your idea of your faith, right? So I had this understanding that the Catholic Church and the priests in our faith were our spiritual leaders. And to understand and realize that they aren't quite living up to that label makes me rethink who I am. It has a lot to do with my identity, especially being a, a cradle Catholic. My identity is so wrapped up in the Catholic Church. It's not a question of will I leave the church or not. Um, that's never for me personally. That's not a question. The faith is the faith. I always go back to scripture. That's revelation. For me, God revealed himself to us in, in scripture. But you do, you start making these distinctions between Christ and his work in the world and this church that you thought represented that work, right? Yeah. And which, um, especially in the Catholic tradition, explicitly claims to represent that work in the world. It explicitly is the visible church. Right. Which is right? which is a little different than, for instance, Protestant circles. Right? Yes. And my faith in that hasn't hasn't changed. I, I still believe Catholic Catholic teaching on what the church is and what the church says it is. Sure. I think what I have come to understand is how frail our humanity is and how much we really need God. Like how necessary redemption was how necessary what it was for Christ to enter into history and to to save us right and um, his grace we can't do any of this without his grace because left to our own devices like we're disasters and so I think that for me that's kind of where I'm kind of the different realizations I'm having of just the importance of relying on grace and that um, it doesn't matter 
uh, what your position in the church is. It doesn't matter how many hours you're at church serving the faithful. It doesn't matter even how much you serve the poor, right? What matters is is what's in your own heart, and that's only something that God sees, and we're all capable of of just being horrible people, <laughs> but we're also capable of being great people, but we can only do that with God's grace. But there also seems to be a bit of a connection emerging for you, if I could pull this out, between the best versions of that being kind of antithetical to a certain kind of celebrity, a certain kind of flashiness, right? That that there's a, a an extra suspicion of the obvious local celebrity or something that maybe you didn't have before. I think I always had it, and I, maybe I'm more aware of it now. Yeah, you had it in seminary, um, yeah. right? So you must have right. had it for a while. Yeah. Right? So I, I think I, but I definitely think it's something I think about more. It, it's interesting. This is just spot on. There is a very real sense among many of my Catholic friends that we have no spiritual leadership in the church, that we have no real models of holiness to look up to. Well, Vanier would have been, what, top five maybe worldwide considered? I mean, that I have thought about that episode and, and that issue many times in our conversation. That one is, I feel like, only beginning to hit me. You know, and it and uh, it happened. Well, it happened almost exactly seven months ago because I found out on the day my son was born, and so I know oh, the day. Congratulations well, for your you. son's birth, not for yeah. finding out about Vanya. It was a very weird thing. I mean, I, I was thankfully quite able to set it aside for a few days. You know, um, that wasn't too hard. I, I had all of the uh, all of God's uh, biological help in uh, f- focusing my brain on this new son uh, but but I'm just I'm still processing that in terms of what does it mean uh, what should I be looking out for how could you know what one way that I said it on our episode was maybe holiness is not transitive like other properties so you might be very intelligent mathematically and really not know how to deal with people you know so uh, just being intelligence is not one thing. Uh, and maybe holiness is not one thing. And yet, because of all the metaphors in scripture of pure and soiled, you know, white as snow, whatever, these these kind of saved, not saved, these sort of binary language that maybe we're conditioned to think of holiness as like one thing, you know, like your mo- holiness could could have a number, so to speak. And maybe not. Maybe it's like there are like eight kinds of holiness or something like that. And and that would be a better way. I mean, I don't I'm I'm riffing because I literally don't know yet. I'm just I'm still kind of reeling from that slowly in the background because he was probably my number one living role model, you know, or, or something. He would have been top three in the faith of, of people still living that I look up to and uh, or at least you know public figures rather. Wow. What a what a massive blind spot he had (laughs) in in literally in the area I am going into like I am learning to treat the people that my hero sexually abused shit I mean like you know that's gonna be that's gonna have some consequences I I find it very interesting that you've brought Vanier up a couple times and I find it I focus so much on Cardinal McCarrick I think because he's a cardinal, but I should be more focused on Vanier because he was a model of holiness. 
Well, because I'm not Catholic, I just don't, you know, president, vice president, congressman. It's like those don't mean much to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so I'm just like, oh, well, who's the guy that everybody loves? Who's who's the best on being episode? You know, it's Jean Vanier. So I, I have a very Protestant approach to like Catholic religious heroes. Right. So I I still see them, even though I got close. Obviously, my my grid is still super Protestant. Yeah, but but you're you're pointing out to me that I should have been more disillusioned with that because he really did model for us. Oh, that's interesting. What it was to be holy, hmm. right? He he was the walking Mother Teresa, right? Yeah, he um, was the living Mother Teresa, and now he now he won't be. You know. Yeah, that's a disillusionment, and the you know from scripture, just uh, sheep without a shepherd just keeps coming back to me, like. Hmm. We really, I feel like we don't have any spiritual leaders and we're always kind of looking for one, aren't we? Um, But what about Pope Francis? I mean, this is, again, kind of a, you know, liberal Protestant perspective, but my circles, uh, we are, we are pretty high on, on Francis. And uh, now I I know one thing we haven't talked about that I know you do get into in the podcast and we don't have to belabor it here is sort of what he knew about McCarrick and, and all of that stuff. And it, uh, my understanding is there's some questions around that still, you know, the reporting much, much better than I do. Uh, but you know, he's a guy who uh, by all accounts seems to be very focused on the way of Jesus, very focused on the good news for everybody the, and the poor for the environment very non-focused on the kind of culture war issues that so often make conservative religion so unpalatable to other people. Like it's all about sex and, and, you know, people's little behaviors and stuff like that, you know? So, so how, where does he fit into this conversation of we don't have this kind of spiritual leadership? That's true. Maybe cause he's in Rome mm. and I think you're, yeah, you're pointing out to me something else that I hadn't thought about. Pope Francis has a very interesting part in our podcast, um, particularly in the beginning, because he responded so poorly to the um, sex abuse scandal in Chile. But then he recognized it, and then he apologized for it, and then he changed course. Oh, yeah. Which I think is a model of holiness for us today. Right, 100%. Um, I think that is something we don't see from our leadership enough especially in a world where like pr scandals are both more devastating and like increasingly likely you know yeah. like the the more complex the world gets the the bigger of an organization you're sort of a part of yeah i'd love yeah. to just see ceos be like totally got that wrong you know yeah. like it, we we have we're such a, it. yeah well and because especially in the states we're so litigious we see yeah. each other so often that like there are legal reasons why public figures won't admit to wrongdoing because if you admit to it, then like someone can sue you in civil yep. court. And so it's this whole. I'm in PR. I know dis- exactly right, how that exactly. works. Yeah. This whole disgusting incentive system where, yeah, the Pope just going, I got that wrong. We're going to we're going to change that is like such a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he gives us some really vo- valuable lessons on this topic. And in others, I am a huge fan of his daily homilies. Going back to our daily mass theme, he uh, says the daily mass at St. Martha's. So that's like a place where people stay um, in the Vatican. And he doesn't write them down. They're all kind of off the cuff. But people kind of realized how awesome they were. So they started 
just kind of reporters would go and just kind of report them. Mm, so yeah. we get tidbits of his daily homilies and he gives extraordinary homilies where that really helped me personally, because I think when you talk about holiness, we look at Vanier, right? And we're thinking, gosh, he did so much good for all these people that society just wants to throw away. Look at everything he did. And Pope Francis talks to us about, you know, what are those little behaviors in your life that are really not Christian uh, gossiping, you know, mostly gossip. He talks a lot about gossiping, uh, which yeah. I think is um, is good because we're horrible to each other, especially um, behind other people's backs. And I think that uh, doesn't help us as people and it doesn't help create community. So he, he kind of focuses on those on those little things, envy, pride, um, always wanting to be number one. And I think we, we tend to focus on that. We want to be winners. We all want to be winners, right? And um, I, I was in a conversation the other day, too, just about the importance of knowing when to just kind of surrender to the reality and, and what's happening and um, and not have to always be on top or be right or have the last word, um, but just kind of let things be. And so that kind of goes back to the quiet theme and just let God work. It does go back to the quiet, the quiet life theme. And what's funny is it also relates to training to become a therapist. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that we're learning about right now is, is this, uh, this skill called motivational interviewing. But it's 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 kind of common sense stuff. They can teach it and there's ways you can sort of track it. But the idea is basically that like if you if somebody is ambivalent about something and they might go one way, they might go the other. And if you make the case for going one way, they will naturally counter with the case for going the other way. Mm -hmm. And it's like a reverse psychology kind of a thing. It's just yeah. it's just something that's built in. And so if I need to be right about something and I, I've got a, I've got a voter on the fence, let's say, you know, it's, it's September, uh, when we're recording this, got an election less than two months away. And I say, we're well, all excited here's, for it to be over. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Here are all the reasons you got to vote for this person. And, and let's say they're on the fence. Well, they're naturally going to feel, yeah, but here are all the reasons I should vote for the other person. And there's something about it. And then if, if that gets into a, a space where I need to be right, where what I'm trying to accomplish, where what I think I'm trying to accomplish in that conversation is convincing them to vote for my candidate. But let's say what I'm actually trying to accomplish is increasing my own self-esteem by by winning an argument. Well, I have just made it more likely that they will vote for the opposite candidate. And so there is a there's a relationship there too that that makes me think of right of like a quiet researcher. A psychotherapist living a quiet life, just doing well by her clients, being mature and and self-assured. Maturity. And not needing. Confidence. Yeah. Like yeah. The, the worst kind of therapist is a therapist who needs you as a client to do or say certain things so they can feel okay about themselves. That's the, yeah. that is the most dangerous kind of a therapist. A needy therapist. Right. Cause you're, yeah. cause you're getting under the hood and you're, and you're working with some of the closest stuff to people's identity you know you're you're working with their their brain pathways and their their neural pathways and wow. if 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 you're getting in there and it's for you and so like this makes me think of, of to not to bring him up again but von yay you're in spiritual direction with these women yes. and you yes. need them to satisfy some sexual thing in you 
you're dealing that that's the most painful kind of thing you can do. It's the worst kind of thing you can do in one sense. I think there's other senses in which what he did is not nearly as bad as what McCarrick did, for instance. And in terms of, you know, or more understandable that he's he had some lack, some some immaturity in some area but he had great power and and therefore anyway we don't we can well we, we interviewed his yeah the well the spiritual trauma part i think is fascinating and in in speaking to survivors and those who kind of study survivors and it's a whole academic area now um and and then people in your area there's a whole level of just added on level to sexual abuse when it's also spiritual abuse and manipulation right and one thing that McCarrick did in his grooming, because we spoke to James Grine, one of his victims, the one that he abused over 18 years, um, beginning when he was 11. And, um, you know, he told him that I am your pathway to Christ. He would uh, sexually abuse him during the sacrament of confession. Ugh. And and James actually went to confession to another guy. And, and he was like, why are you doing that? Don't do that. I'm your pathway, right? Ugh. So that is, that's just a whole other level of of sexual abuse, right? When when you're really putting yourself as God in that person and then harming them at the well, same yeah. time. The difference is that he actually said it out loud. I am <laughs> your pathway. But that is of course what happens in spiritual abuse. I think in a lot of cases yes. is yeah. the the understanding is you are my pathway and now you've damaged my my main pathway to God. I've led us stray in a fascinating <laughs> and personal way that I'm glad, but we've only got a few minutes and I do okay. want to talk about the future. So we've talked a little bit about both of these things, but I want to give you a chance to to fill in any gaps. There have been changes made. Obviously, we've talked about some of them. And there are generational differences, I would assume. And it seems like has been intimated here. Older and newer Catholics. You mentioned 2018. There's the church before 2018, the church after 2018. What else should we know just about that before we're done today? Okay, so the first part is what is the church doing? In the fifth episode of our podcast, we go in depth into the Dallas Charter. Main aspects of that is uh, just we put a bunch of processes in place in all of our dioceses. And, you know, we start with a zero tolerance policy, which was huge. So any a priest uh, credibly abused of, a, of abuse is it's a one strike and you're out. The second thing is mandated um, background checks for all clergy, anyone who works with children in the church, and all volunteers. Uh, yeah, yeah. We have like a, I think, a 97% compliance rate just on the volunteers number. Might be higher. Uh, we we audit the, um, the diocese, not 100% participation, but close. So we go into every diocese every year to make sure that they're doing um, the mandated policies in, in the charter. We do environment. I spoke a little bit about this safe environment training where we're training everybody from kindergartners to our volunteers on what grooming is and how, you know, safe touch, bad touch uh, uh, types of things. So all of that is going on. It's a bumpy road. We're still figuring things out. But the church before 2002 and after 2002 is really different, too. Um, because all of these policies are now in place in our church, and right. it really has made the church a safe place for kids. Talk a little bit about this generational gap. Um, we we talk a lot about generational gaps on this show in more in reference to evangelicalism. So you find like 
the Trumpism and stuff like that, so much more pronounced with older generations. You have young generations kind of kind of leaving the evangelical church, actually, in pretty large numbers. They don't care about evolution uh, as being a problem. They don't care about end times theology, really. So I imagine there have got to be some generational gaps going on in the Catholic world. I'm just not as familiar with that. Specifically, do you, do you find anything around the sex abuse crisis and, and safety of kids and all that? Well, I, I could say two things. Uh, one is that, uh, you know, we're a university. So when the sex abuse crisis hit, we had some outreach to our students. They were concerned about it, but gosh, it was not on their radar as much as it was on someone like mine. Um, I think they grew up in a church post 2002. Right. Um, so they grew up with the sex abuse crisis. For, so for them, the Cardinal Mutharic thing was kind of like your response. So just another priest, right? So it was, it was a very different experience for them. The second is, again, my, my friend who was a psychologist in the seminary and she continues to work in that field, um, you know, as a freelance basis in her retirement. She does a lot of work with the Gen Zers, um, the ones who are kind of just coming up because are they the ones that would be entering seminary now? Probably, yeah. So the, the oldest Gen Z are like out of maybe are in or out of undergrad. Kind of a thing, okay, yeah, so those age, would be yeah. the ones, right, that are entering into seminary now. And um, she says there's a lot of good aspects to these Generation Zers because um, the sex abuse crisis really isn't on their radar. Uh, but what she finds is that they're very open to all of the psychological profiling that goes on. She said that, like, older seminarians make are kind of like they see it like as an invasion of privacy, but I think huh, as like yeah. Gen Zers are, their whole lives have been kind of lived out on Snapchat. Um, With BuzzFeed quizzes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which yeah. And they're very you? into like, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so they actually kind of enjoy the process and they're very open. That's interesting. They're very open and wanting to improve and um, and be better. And, and so she's, she gave me a lot of hope for the future of the church. Now, those are the guys entering seminary. So that's a that's a, a different question than like just the lady, young Catholics right. yeah. in general. And yeah, I don't I don't think I have any great um insights into that generation except that I don't think this issue is on their radar and um and maybe it will when they start having children. Right. I think th- I think it's parents really who get the most upset about this and maybe when they start having kids It'll be more of an issue for them. Yeah. Well, Karna, wow. Obviously, uh, as people can tell, I love this conversation. <laughs> we really, we really, we really dug in the second half there. Uh, and that to me is like, those are the best moments of, of podcasting is when you can, when you get to those, it's almost a little bit sublime. Um, but the show is called Crisis. The podcast is called Crisis. I will definitely be listening to it, uh, especially after this conversation. I am so intrigued uh, to, to hear all of it. And uh, I encourage other people to check it out as well. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. And I'm also going to try and find a link to those Pope Francis daily homilies. Maybe somebody does like an email list or something. I would, you'd think. They should. Yeah. I'll, if you can get I'll, Richard I'll, Rohr, I'll you got to yeah. be able to get Pope Francis. Okay. All right. Well, I'll thank look. you so much All for right. your time, Karna. It's great. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks to Karna and to Josh Gilbert for editing this episode. Thank you to Soren for keeping me company this morning as I put it together. Love you, buddy. 
And uh, yeah, become a patron at patreon.com slash dancoke or you have permissionpod.com and click become a patron. And uh, I think that's about it. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. I think it'll be, we're either going to talk about the failure and future of the church with Tony Jones, or we are going to talk about uh, taking one's sordid past and turning it into a beautiful present with Jed Payne uh, going from um, drug and alcohol addiction to becoming an addictions uh, counselor. Okay. Either way, next week's good because both of those were really good conversations. All right. Peace out guys. Be safe. Love each other. Don't provoke each other on Facebook about the results of the election. You know, practice what you preach. All right. Yeah? What else? Ah! What else? Mama, 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 mama. Mama, mama. Dad, 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 dad. What is that? What are you squealing about? <laughs> okay, okay, we can be done. Want your voice to be heard across Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and hundreds of other podcast apps? Then you should start a podcast with Acast. Whatever you love to talk about, there's an audience out there who wants to hear it. Acast amplifies your voice to millions of listeners around the world with all the tools you need to create, grow, and make money from your podcast. You can get started completely free at Acast.com.